it's my pleasant duty to welcome everyone to the third seminar in this series. Our speaker is Michael Wee, who in fact conceived and organized the whole series, for which we thank and congratulate him. It's attracted a great deal of interest. As you may know, Michael has worked for some time for the Anstone Bioethics Center, which was the Lineker Center for Bioethics, and which, with which Blackfriars has had a research partnership ever since they moved to Oxford and changed their name. And Michael is also an associate member of the Aquinas Institute at Blackfriars, which is co-sponsoring this series. Michael has been for quite some years Education and Research Officer for the Anstone Bioethics Centre, and he teaches bioethics at Blackfriars and at Oscott Seminary. He belongs to the Pontifical Academy for Life and the British Wittgenstein Society and the Scottish Council in Human Bioethics, and he's done research for the Jubilee Centre for Character and Virtues. And as if that were not already enough to make us all feel tired and inadequate, he's currently working for a part-time PhD at Durham University on Wittgenstein's philosophy of language and psychology and its connection to ethics. So we look forward to an extremely interesting paper on connatural moral knowledge, Anscombe and Maritain, on natural law epistemology. So over to Michael. Thank you, Father. So I, I sent Father Richard the, the brief version of my <laughs> of my biog, which is uh, only two lines, but somehow Father Richard dug up the, the long version. But um, just to say, um, so well, let, me, let me show my screen. Uh, I'm actually doing a full-time, not part-time doctorate at Durham University. So that's really my, my principal affiliation at the moment, but uh, by the grace of God and the favor of the moderators, I'm also a member of the Aquinas Institute. So very grateful to be in that capacity, uh, organizing this seminar series and speaking to you today. So ho hopefully everyone can see my screen. You can give me a nod or something, Father Richard, can you see my screen? Good, okay. So, yes. good. So co-natural moral knowledge, Anscombe and Maritain on natural law epistemology. Uh, now, if you've seen my abstract, uh, presumably you have, if not, it's, it's not a problem. Uh, you might be forgiven for thinking that the title of today's talk really should be Anscombe and Aquinas on co-natural knowledge. Uh, I was trying to say a couple of things about Maritain, so you don't think this is the um, academic uh, equivalent of clickbait, uh, but I hope I don't disappoint anyone if I say a bit more about Anscombe and Aquinas than Maritain. And this talk today really is in two parts. Uh, the first part, uh, Aquinas and Maritain on what I call a forgotten history of co-natural knowledge and the second part Anscombe on absolute prohibitions and the natural law. Uh, part of my purpose today is is really exegetical uh, so hopefully that's hopefully that is your cup of tea and if it's not well we'll see how it goes. Uh, just to just to, just to look at some of the, the sources of natural law uh, classic and contemporary to, to find out what, what, what is the, the deal with co-natural knowledge? Why has it been neglected? Why is it important for the study of natural law? Uh, and well, you might wonder at this point, am I going to make something of an argument 
about natural law epistemology. Well, in fact, this talk is going to be in some measure about the whole idea of what does it mean to make arguments or should we always be making arguments as narrowly understood. Now, part of this talk, the second half mainly is based on a paper that's already been published. So uh, for citations, uh, please refer to that paper and not to this talk. Uh, and I think that's, well, yes. And anyway, just to say, just start us off, start us off with a, a quote from Maritime, not that I completely agree, but I think it's a provoking one, a provocative one. I submit that all theories of natural law which have been offered since Grotius and including Grotius were spoiled by the disregard of the fact that natural law is known through inclination or co-naturality, not through conceptual and rational knowledge uh, from his paper, uh, Knowledge Through Co-Naturality. So just to start us off, well, where do we begin? Why this topic of co-natural knowledge in the first place? Now, I, I, I think Father Richard in the first seminar two weeks ago made mention of a similar uh, sentiment that, uh, well, I suppose for many of us, when you hear, when we hear, when we first heard the term natural law, and quite often in connection with the word argument, people maybe speak of the natural law argument against such and such, or a natural law argument against X, Y, Z. Um, we might be forgiven for thinking that oh, the natural law is precisely that, a series of maybe a knockout blow arguments in moral philosophy or moral theology. And if we only you know, plucked up the, the courage and found the time to read those parts of the Summa, the relevant bits of the Summa, uh, we might discover what those arguments are with which we can defend uh, objective morality or whatnot. And of course, when you actually come to look at the Summa, specifically question 94 in the Prima Secunda, uh, Prima Secunda and, and the surrounding uh, treaties on natural law, one finds well, nothing much of an argument, a classification of the four kinds of law, eternal, uh, divine, human, natural, uh, something about uh, a very brief, pithy def definition of the natural law as nothing other than the rational creature's participation in the eternal law, whatever that means, it's not really glossed over in, in that specific part of the Summa. And then one finds this rather celebrated passage, but also obscure in a certain sense of natural inclinations. Since however good has the nature of an end and evil, the nature of a contrary, hence it is that all things, all those things to which man has a natural inclination are naturally apprehended by reason as being good and consequently as objects of pursuit and their contraries as evil and objects of avoidance. Wherefore, according to the order of natural inclinations is the order of the precepts of the natural law, and that's really a key, a key passage for our purposes today. And then Aquinas goes on to enumerate the various different levels of natural inclinations, starting from those we, we, we share in common with all substances, uh, the preservation of our being, and those we share with animals, namely uh, the inclination towards sexual reproduction, um, towards you know, searching for food, and then those inclinations pertaining to our to ourselves specifically as rational beings, search for friendship, search for truth, search for God. Um, in no way does Aquinas suggest that this is a, an exhaustive list. Um, and he doesn't use the term natural, uh, 
basic goods, for example, though this is, as I understand, the basis for that new natural law doctrine. Anyway, it seems that the focus really is on epistemology and how these um, goods are known rather than how they are derived via a form of, of argumentation. Now, I want to say something similar about Anscom, the second half, which will be the second half of this, of this presentation, because Anscombe is another philosopher whom many, especially Catholics, but not, all, not only Catholics, look to for her stalwart defense of uh, absolute moral prohibitions, one of the few, one of the lone defenders of absolute prohibitions in, in ethics, at least in the field of 20th century moral philosophy. Although again, if you, if you actually dive into the texts, if you, if you look at, for example, her, uh, her oft anthologized paper, Modern Moral Philosophy, which I think is still the most cited paper of the journal Philosophy, where it was published in, in the 1950s. Um, she writes, this is a very well-known phrase, a uh, well-known passage, if someone really thinks in advance that it is open to question whether such an action as procuring the judicial execution of the innocent should be quite excluded from consideration, I do not want to argue with him. He shows a corrupt mind. Well, what do we make of that again? Uh, not only is it not an argument, she says, actually, I don't want to argue with such a person. He shows a corrupt mind. And now here she's not talking about natural law specifically, but even when she does, well, she mentions that, and this is the second quote, natural law is simply a way of speaking about the whole of morality, morality being laws promulgated by God, our creator in the enlightened human understanding when it is thinking in general terms about what are good and what are bad reasons. And then she says, that is to say the discoveries of reflection and reasoning, when we think straight about these things, are God's legislation to us, whether we realize this or not. So again, there is that important, I think quite important caveat, when we are thinking straight about these things, and, for, and it's clear from anyone who reads Anskin that there are a whole lot of people she, whom she thinks are not thinking straight about these things, whom she calls stupid, superficial, corrupt, and other such um, terms of abuse. So perhaps here, yeah, the lesson to be learned as we start off this talk on co-natural knowledge is that it's about asking the right kind of question. Uh, Anscombe has been, uh, well, the natural law certainly has been misunderstood. Um, many would argue that the, um, the post-Aquinas uh, scholastic versions of natural law have been in a way defamations of Aquinas' own thought. I, I won't go into that uh, debate. Um, Anscombe herself, her paper, Modern Moral Philosophy, has also been the subject of a lot of philosophical misunderstanding. Some people thinking that she was in fact very skeptical of the idea of being able to defend, uh, to, to propose a view of absolute prohibitions in ethics, if you didn't believe in God, if you if you didn't think there was a divine conception of a divine law conception of ethics, and uh, there was a very remarkable a remarkable letter in the Times Literary Supplements uh, many years ago when her one of her posthumous collections came out and was reviewed by Simon Blackburn under the title Simply Wrong, and Mary Geach Anscombe's daughter and uh, literary executor replied. Uh, I won't read the whole thing, but just to say that her point was that, well, Anscombe didn't think that just because you don't believe in God doesn't mean uh, you won't be able to, to uh, theorize about ethics anymore. But 
she wanted people who did not believe in God to stop asking questions like, is this morally right? And to start asking questions like, is this gluttonous? Or is this that kind of injustice which is called murder? She was proposing in an atheistic culture, a study of the psychology of virtues with a view to finding a clear and non-theistic method by which one could come to see the objective truths of morality. A study of the psychology of the virtues by which one could come to see the objective truths of morality. So is epistemology the key? As I've just mentioned, the first step perhaps is in asking the right kind of question, moving away from the search for an argument narrowly conceived, such as a deduction uh, or an inference of ought from is. Um, I remember in, in last week's discussion, in the informal discussion after Will Nolan's paper, some, uh, one of you said, well, isn't this whole thing about, you know, we can't infer an, an ought from an is, isn't that simply a wrong assumption to make? And I rather cheekily replied to that, well, is it wrong or ought it to be wrong? Well, in a sense, that, that's a moot consideration from Anscombe's point of view, and I would argue really from Aquinas's point of view. It's not about, uh, it doesn't matter whether you can actually deduce ought from is in, in a particular sense, because that's not the right question to ask, at least to get ethics off the ground. And rather than asking questions, not, not unfamiliar to modern moral philosophers, like what justifies morality, or is there a rational requirement, to be altruistic, that's a very Thomas Nagel kind of question, but rather we can ask, how do we know what it is to be, well, if not right and wrong, just and unjust, honest and dishonest? What certainties do I take for granted in acting? So how do you begin with the search for natural law epistemology? Why, in fact, has it been so difficult? Now, as you're aware, if you, if you came for last week's talk that see the, uh, the new natural law theory, so-called new natural law theory has been, uh, is, is marked by a, what's been called an epistemological turn in natural law thinking, which implies that basically before new natural law, the subject of epistemology had never really played a central role in uh, classic discussions of natural law. Well, so part of this task, as I mentioned today, my task is going to be exegetical to try and unearth this what I call forgotten history of co-natural knowledge. Because obviously Finnis and company were not the first to speak about the epistemology of natural law as such. Um, one of the foremost defenders of uh, this epistemological point of view was none other than Jacques Maritain. So just to dive straight in with, I think probably the most important essay of his on co-natural knowledge, I already quoted from that at the start of this talk. This is the passage where he really explains what he means by the notion of knowledge through co-naturality, that is a kind of knowledge which is produced in the intellect, but not by virtue of conceptual connections and by way of demonstration. It seems to me to be of particular importance, both because of the considerable part played by this kind of knowledge in human existence and because it obliges us to realize in a deeper manner the analogous character of the concept of knowledge. That's, that's an important phrase, I think, the analogous character of the concept of knowledge. And I, I won't read the whole thing word for word. In the second paragraph, he then goes to say, well, there's a certain distinction 
that Aquinas makes, he claims, uh, where there are two different ways to judge things in relation to a moral virtue. One is via the conceptual and rational means, which produces in us a merely intellectual conformity with the truths involved. And that's very much the, the province of, um, of deductions and inferences. Uh, a moral philosopher, he writes, may possibly not be a virtuous man and yet know everything about virtues. And the more important form of knowledge for him, which is co-natural knowledge, is when we possess the virtue in question and have it embodied in ourselves and thus be in accordance with it or co-natured with it in our very being. Then if we are asked the question about, say, fortitude, we shall give the right answer no longer through science, but through intuition by looking at and consulting what we are and the inner bents or propensities of our being. A virtuous man may possibly be utterly ignorant in moral philosophy and know as well, probably better everything about virtues through co-naturality. In this knowledge through union or inclination, co-naturality, the intellect is at play, not alone, but together with affective inclinations and the dispositions of the will and is guided uh, and directed by them. And he says it's not rational knowledge, but it really is knowledge, an, an analogous kind, though obscure and perhaps incapable of giving account of itself or of being translated into words. And very briefly, he makes mention that it's not just about ethics, it's also about our religious epistemology. And we don't have time to go into that today, but I thought I'd include that, that last paragraph of this section. Uh, where he talks about the knowledge of divine reality being acquired by theology and the knowledge of divine reality acquired by a mystical experience. For the spiritual man knows divine things through inclination or co-naturality, not because he has learned them, but because he suffers them. Which reminds me of a dictum that theology is not studied, but suffered. Now, I think from this passage itself, it, illuminating as it might be, it was for me when I first read it a number of years ago, um, and, and you know, that, that's which spurred my interest in the subject of co-natural knowledge, we can already begin to see why this has been very much a forgotten history in natural law. By Maritain's own account, co-natural knowledge is obscure and perhaps, sorry, it's obscure and incapable of giving an account of itself. Uh, just to give you a flavor of the reception of Maritain's theory of co-natural knowledge, this is quite a well-known book in contemporary natural law studies by Anthony Liska, Aquinas' Theory of Natural Law and Analytic Reconstruction. And in the whole book, uh, which is about 300 pages or so, there are only two references in the index to co-natural knowledge. And these are the two references in the first he talks about you know, Maritain making the distinction between the ontological element of natural law, the, the normality of the functioning of human nature, uh, and, and the ep epistemological element. Uh, at this point, Liska writes, Maritain introduces his own reading of Aquinas by postulating the concept of co-naturality. This signifies, so Maritain argues, that natural, knowledge of natural law is not rational knowledge, but knowledge through inclination. That this is a controversial analysis of Aquinas is not to be denied. Maritain appeals almost to metaphor while attempting to explicate co-naturality. He writes that the intellect consults and listens to the inner melody that the vibrating strings of abiding tendencies 
make present in the subject. This almost appears to be a direct intuition of an affective dimension of the human person. And in the second, very much makes the point that basically co-naturality is not clearly spelled out in Maritain's analysis of natural law theory, but we can accept natural law in its Thomistic terms without having to accept Maritain's idiosyncratic account of non-cognitive co-natural knowledge. Now, this won't surprise you if you look at the title, being it being called an analytic reconstruction of Aquinas' theory of natural law. It's no surprise, perhaps, that um, on these terms, the epistemological element is not well received, and Maritain surely foresees this difficulty himself. Um, and, I, and I think this points to a general, a general reception of Aquinas' thought that uh, we often look to Aquinas for uh, the brilliance of his deductive reasoning. Uh, people talk about, people look at Aquinas for the famous five ways, the discussion of the divine attributes and the practical syllogism. Uh, and this is, a, this is a, very, a paper to which I'm very, very much indebted uh, on co-natural knowledge. Uh, by Takisuto, and he writes, well, we cannot deny the significance of these examples in Aquinas' epistemology, but connatural knowledge is important. Nonetheless, scholars have tended to focus on uh, the so-called perfect use of reason as opposed to the connatural side of things. So that's one, one reason for this forgotten history. I mean, nobody, if, if you think about the people you know, or, or yourself, perhaps, people you know who read, Aquinas. Nobody really reads Aquinas, generally speaking, for, for what Aquinas has to say about uh, affective inclinations and things like that. I mean, there's a growing interest in Aquinas on emotions, for example, but by and large, it's about the, the brilliance of his deductive reason, the neatness of the argumentation in the Summa, the perfection of the scholastic method of disputation. Now, I want to say something briefly about the term cinderesis as well, which you might have seen in my abstract and it's not quite the same thing as co-natural knowledge, perhaps, but it's it's a very very much a related concept, and you might have you might have seen it in the natural law literature. Now, this this I take from from the book uh, the changing profile of the natural law, which um, which McIntyre regards as one of the definitive histories of the natural law, and uh, and so well, so do I for what my opinion is worth. Anyway, uh, again, it's a great it's a great book. In, in terms of you know, trying to understand how the concept of the natural law has changed uh, from the ancient Greeks down to the different phases of medieval thought and in, in modern thought as well. And there's a brief section on the concept of synderesis, which uh, Michael Bertram Crowe, the author writes, that it's, it's hardly found in present day moral theology. Uh, it made a sudden appearance in the 13th century enjoyed its crowded hour of glorious life and faded away before the end of the century. And the word itself is mysterious because it, and it actually comes from a passage in, in St. Jerome's commentary on Ezekiel, where he uses the word synderesis to describe uh, the, that which oversee, which is above and outside the three parts of the soul in a platonic sense. Um, anyway, this, this, um, this use of synderesis, which is pretty much about the only use of the term, at least in, from the age of the fathers, uh, it turns out was a, perhaps a, if not a mistranslation, uh, 
perhaps a miss, uh, well, a miswriting by by Jerem. That Jerem actually really meant the uh, the more common term of synesis, which is the Greek word for for conscience. But instead, he used a, a, what seemed to be a brand new term, which then in in medieval times was taken up as oh, this is a a, a new concept. Uh, this, is some, this must be something new. And that started in the 13th century, uh, a series of, of discussions about what's the exact relationship between synderesis and conscientia, conscience, uh, with, with uh, different players involved, Bonaventure, uh, Albert the Great, Aquinas, all, all giving different opinions as to the relationship between the two. And it's really St. Albert the Great who, who uh, gives one of the most definitive I think explanations of synderesis as being that faculty with which we have habitual grasp of the first principles of morality, the first principles of practical reasoning, and conscience on the other hand uh, is, is not a faculty but is rather the act of applying those first principles to the concrete situation. So in a typical kind of practical syllogism, the first premise, something is good, that is provided by synderesis and you have the minor premise of you know this is an example of, of that thing which is good and then the movement from the two premises to the action the conclusion of the practical syllogism that is for Albert uh, the act of conscience and that's really a distinction we don't see anymore today today con the, the term conscience tends to cover it's not always clear to people, but conscience tends to cover both aspects of things, the grasp, the somewhat intuitive grasp of the first principles, as well as the act of applying those things to well, the minor premise, to the, the concrete situation we find ourselves in. So, so synderesis, well, anyway, but, but I think what's, what's more important is Crow's explanation of why Thomas Aquinas seems to lose interest in synderesis taking it up originally from Albert the Great's discussion and the distinction between synderesis and conscience. Crow writes that St. Thomas seems to be deliberately avoiding the word synderesis, and particularly by the time he came to write the Summa Theologiae, this is the, in, in the middle of the screen. And he writes, St. Thomas no longer regarded synderesis as a term of importance. Had he gradually become aware of the fact that despite the doctrine of the practical syllogism, Aristotle has nothing to say about habitual knowledge of first practical principles. Such habitual knowledge would even be a superfluity in the Aristotelian system, in which the virtue of prudence is conceived as that concerned with particulars rather than generalities. Again, it will have been noticed that synderesis appears in the early works of St. Thomas as a term with certain neoplatonic overtones. And St. Thomas shows an anxiety to guard synderesis from any imputation of innate ideas. In short, synderesis could be regarded as a term with embarrassing associations. So again, another reason for this, this idea of the epistemology of natural law dropping out in the history is, according to Crow, uh, the, the rather embarrassing platonic associations of, in this case, the term synderesis. Which, which is interesting because um, even, oh, sorry, in the last quote I've given you on the, on, on, on the slide, 
and Crow writes, it, it seems not too much to say that the eclipse of Cinderesis indicates an important evolution in the thought of St. Thomas. Not merely does it indicate an abandonment of a neo-Platonizing moral philosophy for one more consonant with Aristotelianism, it points to the central importance of the reasoning process in matters of natural law and underlines the conviction that the precepts of the natural law must be rational propositions. So contrary to what Maritain says about the analogous use of the term knowledge, you have rational knowledge and you have a different kind of knowledge. Uh, Crow is coming down on the side of, I think, the majority of natural law commentators, at least prior to new natural law, thinking in terms of the central importance of the reasoning process of the character of the precepts of the natural law as rational propositions understood in a fairly narrow sense, you might say. And again, just to remind you of that classic passage we, we, we looked at earlier, well, is that really the case? Is that really what Aquinas is suggesting that of central importance is, well, forget the Aristotelian Platonic distinction for a moment or, or that rivalry, but is it really the case that he's putting such a premium on the rational character understood, uh, understood narrowly of the precepts of natural law that he forgets about our intuitive grasp of them. And again, intuitive is one of those words that what's well, only today in our context today is, a, is very much a loaded word. For some people, intuitionism has a has kind of a, a whiff of um, Cartesianism, of um, uh, clear and distinct ideas, self-evident perceptions. And, and suffice to say for most people, uh, even the most basic you know, natural inclinations of the natural law, well, these are not clear and they're not distinct for most people, most people could say that anyway. So they're, they're not quite like rationalistic intuitions. Uh, and yet I think it's, I, I don't quite agree with, with Crow's assessment of this drop. Yes, maybe Aquinas drop, you know, omitted the term synderesis for platonic reasons, but it's not to say that this signaled uh, a change in, in the development away from this idea of inclinations of intuitions. And in fact, uh, later on in the same book, Crow, Crow writes, I won't read the, the whole thing, but, but he, he basically writes that, well, there is a problem in relation to the, the primary principles or the primary precepts of natural law that much as Aquinas uses all these terms like immediately known, belonging to the habit of first practical principles, uh, infallible, impressed as self-evident on the natural reason. In fact, Thomas gives an, an astoundingly short list of, of what these first principles might be and the examples given are never more than merely illustrative, Crow writes. And at the end of this section, he writes, well, briefly, what is the primary intention of nature will be intuitively known. And there the suggestion must be left. And this seems to me to be, uh, well, typical of a lot of, um, of, of natural law writing that there is a, a kind of half-hearted recognition that yes, the, the intuitive aspect of the primary principles is important, but we can't say much about it. So let's not say anything about it and go on to um, what we like, the deductive reasons, the inferences of ought from is and, um, and what have you, or reasoning from the ends of nature and all of that. So where do we go from here? How, how do we reconstruct an account of co-natural knowledge to plug this gap, which I hope 
hopefully I've, after all that sleuthing, I've, I've uh, hopefully demonstrated that this is an important feature of the natural law, but has been very much neglected or almost a forgotten history. So, to, well, a brief recap. We've said, we've given, I think, three reasons, more or less, why this side of natural law, the epistemology of it, has been neglected in history. Uh, by Maritain's own admission, it's obscure and incapable of giving an account of itself, and therefore scholars have focused more on the brilliance of Aquinas's deductive reasoning. Uh, number two, the concept of synderesis was too platonic for Aquinas. And thirdly, well, and admittedly, Aquinas's own epistemology of natural law is not worked out explicitly. That's the, the latter point that Crow makes, which leading many scholars to therefore just gloss over it, maybe as a, as a quirk, as an, you know, something not so important, uh, something that shouldn't distract us from the main task of reasoning about the natural law. But there's a fourth reason, which is about the, the connection to, to virtue. And that's something that's already been hinted at, I think, from the, uh, well, from what you've seen from Maritain earlier, and also from Mary Gish's comment on Anscombe. Uh, we, that, that uh, for Anscombe, you know, to, to ask, to, to find out what is absolutely prohibited, which you might think is more or less corresponding to the first principles or the, the primary precepts of the natural law, that this is not a freestanding, uh, autonomous, Area, area of ethics as distinct from the concept of virtue. And in fact, for Anscombe, she argues in, in modern moral philosophy, uh, the que questions of what is just or what is unjust, what is unchaste, what is dishonest, all these questions about virtues correspond, at least at some level, to questions about what is absolutely prohibited. So it's this connection to with between the primary precepts of natural law and virtue, which perhaps also has obscured the role of co-natural knowledge in this discussion about natural law epistemology. A brief reminder of what Maritain had said earlier, this is a condensed version of the quote from, from before, where he talks about, well, the virtue, if we ask a question about fortitude, we shall give the right answer by intuition, not, not by science, not by rational knowledge, but by being virtuous ourselves, by having that virtue co-natured, embodied in our very being. Um, and he, he mentions again, in, in this knowledge through union or inclination, co-naturality or congeniality, another word, the intellect is at play not alone, but together with affective inclinations and the dispositions of the will. And for those of us who know our, our virtue ethics 101 again, I mean, this is perhaps the, um, almost, almost the, the, the briefest summary possible of of the Aristotelian view of the virtues, that it's about the dispositions of the will, which are which has been tutored to be disposed to certain goods, but not just the will in a kind of rationalistic sense, but but also our affective inclinations. We don't just learn to choose the good habitually. We don't we don't just learn to be disposed to choosing what is virtuous. But what makes it truly virtuous is that our emotions, our affective inclinations are also tutored to learn, to, so that we learn, don't just learn to choose the good mechanistically, but we also learn to love the good, to be attracted to the good. And therefore, when that happens in our psychology, in our moral psychology, you might say, the intellect is not at play 
alone and that those affective inclinations guide the intellect towards coming to, for Maritime, co-natural knowledge of what is the right thing to be done. And this applies to all the other virtues as well. So for example, if you, if you, you can think of all those classic examples in, in moral philosophy. Uh, if, if you see somebody drowning, if you see the, if there's a if there's a burning, uh, I think of Bernard Williams' example of you know if, if there's a if a building is burning down and your and your your wife is inside, you don't stop to think, you don't stop to reason. Uh, well, she's my wife and I've got a duty to save her. I'm going to go in and save her. That Bernard Williams famously calls that one thought too many. And, and in fact, I think the, you know it's the co-natural knowledge of virtue. Uh, Presumably, one has vir has virtues towards one's spouse, uh, virtuous inclinations towards one's spouse. One has an affective inclination towards one's spouse, and in that situation, looking at the situation, you know, naturally, you don't have to reason. You know, it is in accord with virtue to go in and rescue your spouse. So, Anscombe, in her paper *Knowledge and Reverence for Human Life*, makes three claims about co-natural knowledge. And this is where we begin our reconstruction of Aquinas's theory of co-natural knowledge. Uh, and the first two here are really the more, the more important ones. The first claim she writes is that co-natural knowledge is not concerned exclusively with ethics, not just about virtue, not just about absolute prohibitions. It also includes forms of knowledge as basic as, say, the knowledge of material substances. Such, not, such knowledge can be considered co-natural because of an affinity in nature between ourselves as material beings and such substances. Where it concerns ethics, then she writes again that connection to virtue. It is a capacity to recognize what action will accord with and what ones will be contrary to a certain virtue. And then she writes, thirdly, the most important instance of co-natural moral knowledge is the knowledge of the dignity of the human being, which is essential to possessing the virtue of justice. And this paper, written I think much later than modern moral philosophy, gives you a sense of why she thinks that if somebody thinks that it is open to question as, as to whether you can execute an innocent person, this person shows a corrupt mind. This person is lacking. And the most important for her, the most important instance of co-natural moral knowledge which is the dignity of the human being, essential to possessing the virtue of justice. Now, how does this accord with, how can this be harmonized with the very little that Aquinas says about co-natural knowledge? Uh, and where he does say it, he doesn't really say, say it in relation to, to natural law. How can this, how can this conceptual you know, gap be plugged as it were? Well, let's look at what Aquinas himself says about co-naturality now, which I think I've not actually shown you anything yet. Now, this is quite, a, quite an important passage in Aquinas in, in, in the Secunda Secunde on uh, co-naturality. And here again, this corresponds very much to uh, that second point uh, that Anscombe makes on the, the relationship between co-naturality and virtue and this again is what you've heard this is basically the passage that Maritain was referring to earlier that distinction between uh, the perfect use of reason and secondly on account of co-naturality 
a kind of co-naturality with the matter about which one has to judge. And here the example is not about, it's about the virtue of chastity, and later on also wisdom, uh, the intellectual virtue of wisdom in relation to, to divine things. But you've heard, you've heard this point before, there is that distinction between knowing things rationally or conceptually and knowing things co-naturally. And that is, is that co-natural knowledge that is used in, particularly in the exercise of virtue. Now, according to um, Takisuto, whom I mentioned earlier, he thinks that if you look at this passage, this really is the secondary usage of the term co-naturality in Aquinas. And for no other, for among other reasons, he says, well, like, if you look at this passage, Aquinas very clearly qualifies the term co-naturality with the words a kind of, in Latin, quedam co-naturalitas, I think it is. And he says that actually, if you look at other instances of co-naturality, there are very few of them in the Thomistic corpus, but in most other cases, Thomas doesn't qualify the term co-naturality. He just says, it is co-natural. Um, specifically in the Prima Secunde, and this is where he relates co-naturality to the idea of attraction, of inclination. And he speaks of, now in each of these, this is a, on the question of love, he says, now in each of these appetites in the soul, the principle of movement towards the end loved is called love. In the natural appetite, here natural in the sense of the most, the lowest level of things that we share with with plants, with just material substances, inanimate substances. The in the natural appetite, the principle of this movement is the appetitive subject's co-naturality with the things to which it tends, and it can be called natural love. Thus the co-naturality of a heavy body for the center is by reason of its heaviness, is by reason of its heaviness, and can be called natural love. And then he speaks in the sensitive appetite of co-aptitude, doesn't quite use the word co-naturality, and for intellectual or rational love, he uses the term complacency, not, not in the modern English sense, but in the Latin sense of complacentia, uh, to be well pleased, I think it's, it's a good translation. This is the same word used in uh, at the baptism of, of Christ in the River Jordan, uh, when when uh, heavens open and a voice from, from above is, uh, is heard saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, complacery. So this is the highest level, intellectual or rational love. And Suto basically says that, well, if you look at the way Aquinas uses the term co-naturality, the strict sense of co-naturality is really the most basic, lowest, the lowest level of natural inclination. Uh, and Whereas when we go above to the sensitive appetite and particularly to the, to the intellectual appetite, to intellectual love, and with that, you know, the formation of virtue as well, this is really a secondary kind of co-naturality. Uh, not our first nature, but in, in, in the time-honored distinction, our second nature, where our virtues, although, although they are acquired, having acquired them, they also become part of our nature as our second nature, and that's why we can act on virtuous dispositions automatically, co-naturally, that is not, not mechanistically. Um, and then Suto gives some explanation on, the, on Aquinas' uh, discourse on love and on cognition, 
where Aquinas speaks of love as a mutual indwelling, a very nice passage in, in, in the Summa on the mutual indwelling that for Aquinas, when you love somebody or something, in a certain sense, perhaps in a very abstract or intellectual sense, the object of your love is already present within you and shapes the way you, you are attracted to that thing. And this, this corresponds to his view of cognition, which I know sounds like a bit of a medieval tongue twister. The received is in the receiver according to the mode of the receiver. It's, again, it's, it's a similar idea that what is being perceived is in fact already within you, already shaping the way that you perceive that thing. Now, I, I again, while I'm very much indebted to this um, account of co-natural knowledge by Takisuto, it's a very good, it's a, a short paper that I think, you know, does a good exegetical job of uh, drawing attention to this neglected concept uh, in the review of metaphysics. Again, I'm not, I'm not totally convinced that we need to focus on this, you know, distinction between the primary and the secondary sense of co-naturality. And that's particularly because when we come, when we think of the idea of, of virtue, and this is, a, this is a bit of a problem here, well, at least for Anscombe, although she accepts that, yes, there is a sense of co-naturality in relation to virtue, uh, having acquired that virtue, you then acquire in your second nature, those co-natural inclinations of how to act when there's a burning building, how to act when you see a homeless man on the street, you know, in the cold, uh, that sort of thing, how to act in the relation to fortitude, that, that's all our second nature. But Anscombe thinks that there is a kind of circularity, a circular problem, that yes, it is through virtue that you acquire those co-natural inclinations, but actually to really acquire those virtues in the first place, you do need a certain baseline of, call it what, natural inclinations as well. And you might say, okay, there's, there's moral education to teach you, to habituate you to those things so that you learn those inclinations. But again, that sound that, that would sound very, very you know, mechanistic, something that you've just been a bit Pavlovian, you know, you've been conditioned to be inclined thus to a certain set of, of things. Unless, of course, there was something even before the second nature, something in our first nature that was already um, attracted to, already thus inclined to those good things. And really, in the same passage quoted just now, in the reply to an objection, Aquinas then talks about natural love. He doesn't use co-naturality, but he says, well, natural love actually is not only in the powers of, of, the, of the vegetative soul, but in all the soul's powers and also in all the parts of the body and universally in all things. And he says, well, he then uses the term co-naturalness. Um, Beauty and goodness are beloved by all things, since each single thing has a co-naturalness with that which is naturally suitable to it. So, get that. So, and, and I think here, at least as a kind of interpretive point, we might say that, well, it's all well and good to make some of those distinctions about, you know, the, the most, the lowest level of natural inclinations, which is the strict sense of connaturality for, for Suto, and then the sensitive appetite, and then the intellectual appetite. But, as I mentioned, there's a problem of circularity, a potential problem of circularity for virtue, and, well, 
in the first place, is it not the case that, at least for Thomistic reading of the human person, these distinctions between the different levels of our appetites are, strictly speaking, a kind of abstraction from reality, that in fact, there is no real separation of powers in the person. There is no literally tripartite soul for a Thomistic Aristotelian view of the human soul. Uh, and in fact, and this is a point that Maritain makes, and Anscombe also makes separately in another essay I've not quoted, that yes, although we have those animal inclinations, or in fact, vegetative inclinations towards preservation of human life, but they, and this is the, the, the bottom, are essentially human. They are reason permeated. Uh, and Anscombe speaks of this as our, even our lower level of inclinations are framed by our rationality. Because it's not that we have three souls, a vegetative soul with its inclinations, an animal soul with its inclinations, and then at the top of that, a rational soul with its own you know, uh, intellectual loves and, and, and what have you. Actually, it's all the same soul. They're all interconnected and the highest frames the lowest. So really, I think there's no reason to say that the, the natural inclinations of the higher levels of the soul, the rational and the appetitive, that these could, there's no reason to say that these could not count as co-natural knowledge, even in the strict sense. I think the secondary sense is that that has been acquired, but even prior to the acquisition of virtue, that which makes virtue possible in the first place is a certain baseline of mutual indwelling. That already in human nature, we already have a certain mutual indwelling, a certain lightness with regard to the subject matters of the virtues. And that is the basis of our, the first natural inclinations. And on that basis, we develop, we acquire the virtues and the second nature and those co-natural inclinations. So this is coming to the end of, of, this, of this presentation. This is, this is for me, I think my favorite passage in, a quite, uh, in Anscombe's moral philosophy. And just to bring together the threads that we've been, that I've been spinning anyway, about co-natural knowledge. Uh, this is in her essay, Contraception and Chastity, but in fact, this passage has nothing to do with chastity, not, not in this present moment. She writes, some virtues, this is the connection to virtue, like honesty, sobriety are fundamentally utilitarian in character. The very point of them is just the obvious material well-ordering of human life that is promoted if people have these, these virtues. Um, some though indeed profitable are super utilitarian and hence mystical. And for me, for me, I read her use of the word mystical here as being broadly synonymous with co-natural of, of the primary kind. And she writes, you can argue truly enough, for example, that general respect for the prohibitions on murder makes life more commodious. If people really respect the prohibition against murder, life is pleasanter for all of us. But this argument is exceedingly comic because utility presupposes the life of those who are to be convenienced. That is all of us. Uh, but, and everybody perceives quite clearly that the wrong done in murder is done first and foremost to the victim, whose life is not inconvenience, it, isn't, it just isn't there anymore. He isn't there to complain. So the utilitarian argument has to be made 
on behalf of the rest of us. Therefore, though true, it is highly comic and not the foundation. The objection to murder is super utilitarian, is mystical, I want to say, is co-natural. Here she's saying, uh, you know, it is true. Obviously, you can make an argument. Uh, it's almost like a, I want to say, a reverse engineered natural law argument. And if you want to think about how, how we should live as a society, how we, how we should flourish, to use the Aristotelian term, yes, it would seem like the, um, uh, the prohibition on murder is a pretty good way, a pretty good starting point for our flourishing. But in fact, for her, it's not the foundation. The objection to murder is on our perception that murder does wrong not to the rest of the community so much as to the person himself or herself who is murdered. And I, want, I, I want to very briefly comment on a similarity and a difference with McIntyre, who makes not, not quite the comic argument that, that Anscombe calls it, but he does again make a kind of reverse engineered argument in, in the natural law that if you had to start a community, if you had to reason about what is the common good, about how to engage in a common project, then it would seem like the prohibition on murder is a really good thing to have. But even McIntyre in a much later work says, stresses that such a precept, such as you know, the prohibition on murder, these are not findings or conclusions inferred from some antecedent set of judgments. It is rather the case that in adopting the attitudes of rational inquiry, we discover that we have already implicitly, characteristically, had to accord them authority. They cannot but be presupposed and are therefore the necessary starting point for any inquiry that pursues the truth about goods or the good. So, oh, it's the good, not the God. Uh, and so basically McIntyre is saying that actually to reason to even begin to reason about how we are to achieve the good in a common life, which one can again reason as being essential to who we are as beings, as rational beings, then we find that there are already certain preconditions on that reasoning, among them uh, the prohibition on murder, guarantee of liberty, maybe even private property, I don't know. Uh, he does say something about property, anyway. Um, and that is both similar and very dissimilar to Anscombe's point of view. Because Anscombe, I think, is saying, is saying something quite different entirely. She's not even talking about preconditions for reasoning, as McIntyre and, and, and other natural lawyers would use the term. For her, the wrongness of murder, now this is where she's more or less in, uh, in agreement, is not the conclusion of an argument, but it's, it's a basic mode of seeing the world. It comes from our natural inclination, which we've already mentioned, to preserve life. That's one of the lowest levels of co-natural inclinations. But for us, it's also framed by our intellect. And I think it's through our intellect that we perceive our neighbor, among other things, we perceive our neighbor to be almost another me, as it were. And I think this is where, when we reflect on how, how do we come to know that something like murder is wrong? It's not the conclusion of an argument. I don't, I don't even want to try and make an argument about it, but it's something that we know because of the way our intellectual life, our intellectual love frames our more 
you know, natural, the, the, the lower level natural inclination of preserving life and also includes the way we relate socially to others. And therefore we know co-naturally by a certain mutual indwelling because in, in a certain sense, because of our shared nature, we are mutually indwelling in each other, you might say in a certain, in a very qualified sense that we know co-naturally what it is for someone else to be killed. I mean, this is a difficult argument, it's not an argument in a classic you know, sense of deductive reasoning, but I think that is very much the, you know, the, the spirit of Anscombe's and I would argue Aquinas's way of talking about the primary precepts of the natural law, in this case, the precept against killing the innocent. And, and I think the danger, this for me is an, another important point, is in treating the first principle of practical reasoning, good is to be uh, sought and evil avoided, as all too analogous to that of speculative reasoning. I think a danger has always been that we think of practical reasoning as basically speculative reasoning, but about action. And that's where you have things like the practical syllogism, which useful as it might be, I think leaves a lot of questions open. How do you go from knowing, well, X is good, this is an instantiation of X, and let's choose it. I mean, why not choose something else in a different moment? Why not abstain from this in the present moment? The practical syllogism is, I think, on its own. It, it's very much to me, practical reason, uh, speculative reasoning molded to apply to action, as opposed to what I think would be a genuine form of practical reasoning, which is not to start with the analogy of speculative reasoning, but to start in desire, in the attraction to a particular good, which we have, at least on the most fundamental level, because of a baseline of mutual indwelling within us. Um, I think my last point is that Anscombe, and she was particularly critical of utilitarianism, and, and this is in modern moral philosophy, where she did, you know, she talks about those thought experiments that try to, you know, designed to cast doubt on whether something is absolutely prohibited. You know, like would you torture a child if it led to the, uh, to like to the divulging of crucial information to prevent a, a terrorist plot? You know, that that kind of experiment, thought experiment, which we've all heard before. And part of a point, part of a criticism there is that these thought experiments only have strength, only have force to us because they presuppose that we actually already have a basic sense that murder is at least, or torture or whatever it is, is at least generally speaking wrong. And if we didn't even have that basic mode of seeing the world, the force of these thought experiments, they don't even make sense at all. You know, there is no hard case if there is no norm in the first place. Nonetheless, her view of co-natural moral knowledge, I think shares something with utilitarianism, that our most elementary attractions or repulsions are indeed indicative of good and evil. We need to go beyond them, of course, they're not just good and evil in themselves, and I think that for her is the, the superficiality of utilitarianism, that you, that you just stop there at pain, pain and pleasure, and for her, she would say, yes, you know, pain and pleasure are the most elementary indications of what is bad and what is good, what is not to be sought and what is to be sought, the beginning of practical reasoning, although we have to go further. So I'm going to end there because I've gone over time. And 
say thank you very much and let's have time for questions. <laughs>